Welcome to another podcast from the Royal College of Psychiatrists. My name is Raj Pasord, and I'm a consultant psychiatrist based at the Bethlehem Royal and Maudsley Hospitals in South London. Uh, joining us today is Professor Ronald Rapee um, from the Department of Psychology, Macquarie University, based in Sydney. And he and some co-authors have published a fascinating paper in the September issue of the British Journal of Psychiatry entitled Treatment of Social Phobia Through Pure Self-Help and Therapist Augmented Self-Help. Um, so first of all, Ronald, this paper is focused on um, social phobia. Tell us a little bit about social phobia and why you picked this disorder to study. Well, social phobia is a disorder uh, where people have a great deal of difficulty interacting with others um, and have a lot of difficulty generally with concerns about negative evaluation. It's uh, one of the anxiety disorders and there's been a, a reasonable amount of work over the years looking at self-help for a variety of different anxiety disorders showing reasonably good success. And that's been particularly, for example, with panic disorder and, and agoraphobia. And social phobia is one of the more debilitating and chronic of the anxiety disorders, and yet it just has never really had any work done on it in terms of self-help. So we thought, well, that's really an area that, that, that needs to be looked at. Isn't it also a disorder, correct me if I'm wrong, where there might be a massive clinical iceberg, where there could be many, many people suffering from it, many of whom don't actually go and receive um, any kind of therapeutic help? Well, that's actually true of all the anxiety disorders, but you're right, probably, if anything, social phobia would be more an issue there because, of course, by definition, these are people who don't want to talk about their disorder and don't want to be seen to be weak or incompetent. Could you perhaps sketch out an example of what someone suffering from a social phobia, how, how it would affect them and what symptoms they would manifest and how it might impact on their lives? Well, a typical person with social phobia would be someone perhaps who is, is functioning moderately uh, in society. They might have a job uh, that perhaps is lower than they're trained for or that they're capable of. Uh, many people with social phobia uh, refuse to go for promotions or will very much restrict the type of job that they go for uh, because of their disorder. Um, they will often experience uh, the obvious visible sorts of symptoms, blushing, shaking, sweating, uh, whenever they're interacting with people or particularly whenever they feel like they're suddenly the centre of attention. They might uh, experience a lot of uh, their mind going blank. They might feel very much as though um, others are talking about them uh, or thinking bad things about them, but not in a psychotic sense. Uh, they have insight, but rather in a sense that they just feel that others are thinking that they're, uh, that, that they're weaker or that they're, um, that they're incompetent in some way. As a result of that, of course, many people with social phobia, their main issue is that they tend to restrict social contacts. So they tend to have less social support, less friendships than other people. They tend to have a great deal of difficulty meeting new people, joining organisations, joining into groups. And as a result, therefore, they have a lot of secondary problems, particularly uh, depression and loneliness and uh, potentially also uh, drug and alcohol abuse. One of the particularly interesting things about, I think, social phobia is that to um, an external non-expert um, observer, someone suffering from a social phobia may appear entirely like anyone else. But it can have a devastating impact on people's careers, can't it? A lot of people, as, precisely as a result of the many of the things you've just described, end up not, not really um, doing as well as they could do in their careers. It can have a really quite a big impact on people's lives. Very much so. And that can extend anywhere from the more high-functioning people who perhaps are working at a reasonable level in a career and then hit a sort of a snag point where, where the next job or the next promotion involves 
public speaking or, or um, taking control of people, being a manager, and they stop at that point. Uh, right through to those people, for example, who uh, take a total career and job based entirely around their social phobia. Uh, so, for example, I can think of several people um, who have taken jobs uh, working as janitors or as uh, night watchmen, those sorts of jobs, be precisely so they don't have to interact with or meet other people. Now, your study was um, comparing pure self-help with therapist augmented self-help. What did you mean by self-help in the paper? Self-help was defined as, uh, what we did was we provided people with a commercially available book. And the book is essentially an educational tool, an educational material that provided all of the information that people needed uh, in order to be able to run a, a treatment program essentially on themselves. So it provided them, themselves with the educational material they needed and then it was up to them to implement that information. And the main issue or the main question in the study was, is it possible for people to take the information and implement it in a way that actually does help them? And the comparison group had therapist augmented self-help. So I imagine these people had the book, but they also had something else. Could you say something about the input they were getting from a therapist, what that would have involved? That's right. So whereas uh, in one group the people were getting the information and were left entirely to their own devices to see how well they could implement the, the material, in the therapist augmentation condition, they received five group sessions that was facilitated by a clinical psychologist. And the main aims of the therapist in that case and the group was partly to provide the motivation and impetus for people to implement the uh, principles and partly also to help them interpret and understand the information better. So it wasn't a full degree of therapy, but it was really more a sort of an implementation and motivational type of uh, orientation. What were your findings? What we found was that in the pure self-help condition, people got fractionally better, but it really wasn't, uh, there wasn't much effect and it was barely better than waitlist. In other words, barely better than those people who got no treatment at all. Now, to some extent, that was a little surprising because, um, as I mentioned earlier, in other anxiety disorders, such as uh, agoraphobia and panic disorder, in areas like depression and, and other sorts of areas, people have found that self-help is actually very effective. So what we're finding, first of all, is that in a very chronic and disabling condition like social phobia, people don't seem to be able to implement a pure self-help program as much as, as perhaps in some other areas, some other disorders. But what we did find, which was very promising, was that in the therapist augmented condition, um, people did extremely well. And I should mention that our standard treatment uh, here for social phobia involves 10 sessions, group sessions with a therapist. And so in the augmented condition, we had five. And so what we found was that with half the number of therapist conditions, we were actually able to get exactly the same outcome, exactly the same results as we got with our full-blown 10-session uh, program. What were your findings? Well, I, I guess the implications are twofold. I guess um, first, uh, as I mentioned, the... Uh, it suggests that pure self-help is probably not a fabulous option for people with social phobia. There were certainly some individuals who did very well with the pure self-help, and so it may well be that the occasional person who is extremely motivated and really driven to improve will be able to do it. But the typical person with social phobia probably shouldn't be just handed a book and told to go off and do it. 
At the same time, there are some great cost effectiveness uh, implications from our therapist augmentation condition. Essentially, we found that you could use half the amount of therapist resources. And so what that suggests is that therapists, putting it the other way, therapists can then run twice as many groups as they normally could by augmenting them with self-help materials. What do you think the implications are of this paper? I think there's no doubt. I think uh, whenever these sorts of new, uh, quote-unquote, new discoveries come around, people get very excited, and, uh, and then we start to develop perhaps a more realistic take on them. And I think uh, our paper is a good example of that, of, of providing a more realistic take where we can now say, well, okay, self-help does work for some disorders, but it's not the answer. It doesn't work for all disorders, and there are certainly some disorders where perhaps it's not the answer, but that there may be ways of integrating self-help to improve traditional therapy. And I guess the, the bottom line is that we all know that traditional therapy is extremely expensive and it's also very limited. We simply can't reach everybody with traditional therapy. So we have to look for alternative ways of delivering treatments. And by integrating self-help together with traditional therapy might be one type of approach. And the idea then in future research will be to try to explore other uh, variations of a theme. The current cognitive behavioural therapy view of, of treatment of, of many disorders, perhaps particularly the anxiety disorders, is that um, people could help themselves. People could use the therapy. It could be in a manual, it could be in a book, or it could be on a CD-ROM. Um, and that maybe providing a therapist is just another way of delivering the same essential therapy. What are your thoughts about what is it that people are getting from the therapist or the therapist augmented self-help group that was in your trial that they're not getting just from the book? What's the, the magic extra ingredient the therapist is providing? Yes, I, I guess the, the, the ingredients, well, it's hard to know, but I, I guess the ingredients that a therapist is providing would be Firstly, I think a sort of a, um, an expert take on the material. So while we can provide the material to people, it's extremely hard when, when writing these books to get across every little nuance and to think about every person's individual situation and how they particularly can apply it to their lives. So an experienced therapist is able to take the basic principles and, and the information and help the person apply it to their particular situation and explain that in a far more expert and far more personal way than you ever can in a book. So I think one of the things that a therapist does is provide that expertise and that, that application. I guess it's probably also then a truism to suggest that a therapist also provides motivation and provides the, the, the client with those sort of non-specifics of hope for the future and an idea that they really can improve if they use these strategies. And all of those things can come across in a book to some extent and perhaps can come across even better in some of the newer computerized programs, but they still probably are not as good as a one-on-one -on -one individual contact. Professor Ronald Rapi, thank you very much indeed. It's been my pleasure. Thank you.